Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, we're continuing our study in the churches of Revelation, and so far we've learned about three. First one was Ephesus. Ephesus was the passionless church. Uh, Spirit says they had left their first love and become unfaithful to the Lord um, through spiritual dullness and spiritual indifference. Then we talked about the church in Smyrna, one of only two where the Lord just said positive things, but they were being tested and persecuted and opposed, and he encouraged them to stand firm and, and, and keep to their faith. And then last week, uh, you saw that we saw the church in Pergamum, or Pergamos, uh, which was the compromised church. And the problem in Pergamos is they had allowed false teaching and weak doctrine to become their new conviction, just kind of what we've seen in the American church, uh, especially over the last 30 years. Now, this morning we're going to look at church number four, and that's the church in Thyatira, Thyatira, and this is really going to be a, a kind of a parallel concept to last week, because where we saw doctrinal compromise uh, last week, anytime there's doctrinal compromise, there's going to be moral compromise. And really vice versa. Anytime there's going to be moral compromise, there's going to be doctrinal compromise. So much of what we're fighting this morning, so much of what we're dealing with as Christians was told to us by the Holy Spirit. He, he told us this would happen. And if you've read through 2 Timothy lately, and if you haven't, I encourage you to do it. 2 Timothy 4, the Spirit says, The time will come when professing Christians will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, we saw a little bit of evidence of that last week, and we talked about a couple examples of, of the doctrinal compromise that's been allowed within Christianity and even been embraced with Christianity. But, but the problem is not just a few bad teachers. The problem is not just a couple people that have, that have kind of wandered from the integrity of the word. It, it really is a ministry philosophy. And this ministry philosophy has, has really been so widely accepted over the last 30 years, 35 years, that, that there are more books written about it, and there are more seminars about it, there are more conferences about it than there are about having a ministry that would look like Acts 2. We've gotten very clever. We've gotten very uh, full of ourselves in terms of what we think is going to be best. And, and not to be uh, overly simplistic, but we, we really can summarize this philosophy in three sentences. Sentence number one would be, keep it simple and easy. Keep it simple and easy. Don't, don't do deep teaching of the Word. Just help people uh, to, to feel good kind of meet their felt needs, talk about um, things that are heavy on life application, but, but don't really take the Word apart. Certainly, we're not, as churches, teaching people to learn to study the Word of God themselves. And I'm determined that this fall, we're going to come back with a Bible study methods course. We're going to teach how to study the Word again. We've done that a couple times here at the church. Every believer needs to know how to take apart the Word of God. So that's number one. Number two philosophy is keep it inoffensive. Focus on the positive, focus on encouraging people using parts of the Bible that, that uh, are, are easy for us, but avoid the difficult, avoid what people would call controversial, that, 
that causes people to be under conviction and causes them to really be challenged. So keep it easy and simple. Keep it inoffensive. And third, keep it relevant. Now, of course, we want to be relevant. But many times the word relevant becomes kind of a code word for, for using literal scripture only when it's comfortable. And when it gets uncomfortable, when it gets full of conviction, then we need to, to kind of deflect away. Problem is, all scripture is relevant. All scripture is intended and useful because it's inspired by God to be profitable for our teaching and correction and training in righteousness. And many times what's uncomfortable, and there will probably be some things this morning that are uncomfortable. Many times what's uncomfortable is important. Now the problem with this doctrinal compromise and the problem with this ministry philosophy is that it's weakening Christians rather than strengthening them. And it's weakening the church rather than strengthening the church. And if there is one place where we need to be built up and, and rooted and grounded in our faith and encouraged and strengthened to be steadfast for the Lord, it's here. Because when you go to work tomorrow, I guarantee you it's not going to be a place where you, I feel so fed and so uh, much more steadfast in the Lord because of my work environment. And as people are swearing around me and saying filthy things that they did this weekend, I just felt I was so much more in love with the Lord because of that. The place where we're fed, the place where we're encouraged, the place where we're strengthened is right here. There's enough external pressure from the culture. So this needs to be a place of refuge and, as we call it, a place of refreshing where you get stirred up, where you get strengthened, where you get encouraged, where you feel strong and fed and, and full. So when you walk out, all right, I'm ready to face the world. And tomorrow morning I'm going to get in the Word and I'm going to study and I'm going to ask the Lord for help and then I'm going to go to my job and I'm going to raise my kids and I'm going to do what I do and I'm going to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Now, what we've seen in the seven churches is that they weren't always diligent about that, and they weren't always protective of the body. So when that happens, we tend to, to kind of fall back into the enemy's schemes to weaken us, and that's what happened in Thyatira. Look at the text here. Let's get a little background on the city. I like to give you a little, little sense of what it was like just because I think it, it helps us. Thyatira, of the seven cities that are listed here, was the smallest. It was the least important wasn't prominent as a city. It wasn't prominent uh, religiously. It only had two little temples. Uh, it was not a place where you worship Caesar, made sacrifice to Caesar, as we saw in other cities. Um, it was a trade center. It was near two rivers, kind of stuck in a valley. Uh, and it had, uh, the, the thing that was uh, memorable about Thyatira is it had a purple plant. And the purple plant was used to dye wool. So Thyatira was kind of the center. You remember Lydia, who was the first convert in Asia. She was from Thyatira, and she dyed wool. So this special plant was there. Even better, and I thought this was fascinating, one of the rivers had a tiny little shellfish called a murex. And the murex had a drop of purple dye in its throat. Strange, right? If you could extract that, the, the, the market value of that little drop of purple dye was worth a thousand denarii. Now, a thousand denarii was worth three years of salary. Can you imagine how people were fishing at that point? I'd become a fisherman at that point. Thousand year, thousand denarii, three years of salary just for that one little drop of purple. So Thyatira was known as a place of, of textiles and 
and development of wool uh, to be colored for whatever reason. Also a military center. It had a, a, a weapon repository uh, that was important because Pergamos, remember the city we studied last week, um, was kind of behind it. Thyatira stood in the way of Pergamos, but Pergamos was kind of exposed in terms of uh, attack. So Thyatira stood in the way and supplied the weapons for Pergamos when it got attacked. So they were connected, not only in terms of, of practice, but in terms of spiritual compromise. And when we look at the text here, and we're going to start this morning in verse 18. The Lord has positive things to say, and it has, he has negative things to say. But the majority of the words that he gives to the church in Thyatira are about a very serious spiritual problem that has a lot of application for us this morning. So let's read what he says, and then we'll develop the text a little bit more in depth. Look at chapter 2, Revelation, verse 18. The angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I'll throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, when you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I've also received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the positive, okay, just a verse. The Lord commends them for their love, for their faith, for their service, and for their perseverance. Now, those are outstanding qualities that please the Lord. And any one of us would love to have that said about us. This church would love to have it said about us. We'd love to have the Lord say, hey, Paul Rhodes, hey, Harbor Rock Tabernacle, I, you're known for your faith, you're known for your love, you're known for your service, and you're known for your perseverance. All wonderful qualities. But if that isn't, um, isn't continued on in terms of maturity, in terms of holiness, in terms of progression, the witness that we have will fail. If there is moral compromise, those qualities not only become weaker and ineffective, but essentially they become hypocritical. Now these people excelled in some areas, but he gives them one verse of positive and eight verses of negative. And the problem was, they were permissive in areas that damaged the good. I'm calling Thyatira the permissive church. They permitted error. They permitted something that led believers, even strong believers, to believe that it was okay to be unholy. Now, why did that happen? We'll look back at the text. 
it says in verse 20 that they permitted this woman, Jezebel, they tolerated her, and she was teaching people that faithfully loved and served the Lord that they could commit acts that were immoral and could sacrifice to idols. Now, so much of this text revolves around that word in verse 20 where it says you tolerate this woman. And I want to start with that word because that's a word that our culture loves to throw back at us. That's a word that society says is necessary for Christians if they're going to be more open uh, to, to Christianity. If, if, if Christianity is going to exist within our society, then we're going to have to be more tolerant. Now notice, anytime somebody says that to a Christian, they're not saying, if you would just be a little bit more tolerant, then I would be way open to trusting in Jesus Christ. I, it, it would be the linchpin. It's a one-way street. We want you to accept anything that, you, that we want to do because as Christians you need to be tolerant, but we're not going to tolerate anything you do or believe. And if you start talking about the Bible and you start talking about, about what you think we should do with our life, that we're going to have nothing to do with that. In other words, bottom line, you Christians just need to chill on the literal interpretation of the Bible. And you need to not speak out against what the Bible calls to be sin. Now this debate has, has even infiltrated the church. And some people are arguing that if we're going to engage with our culture, and that's the term you usually, usually hear, if we're going to engage with our culture, then we shouldn't take a strong stand against some of these social issues and we shouldn't be as firm on a little interpretation of the Bible because, because that will push people away. And I want to suggest to you, as I did last week, that we look directly at Jesus Christ. How did Jesus engage with the culture? What did he do? Did he walk around giving a soft gospel and kind of just accepting people however they were? No, he called out sin and he called people to repentance. The first thing Jesus said was repent. John the Baptist, in preparation for Jesus, said, repent. Jesus healed people physically, emotionally, and spiritually because he directly confronted the issues in their life. And if we don't do that, if we, if we try to be clever, then we're going to stop thinking Jesus is wonderful because we're going to be adapting. And that's exactly what happened in Thyatira. Their, their tolerance started with allowing this woman Jezebel to wreak all kinds of havoc on the church because she was telling Christians, you have license to live sinful lives. Now, as I studied through this, I, I thought there were really five significant problems, and I want to try to go through these quickly and maybe write these down just so you can kind of interact with the text a little bit. But I believe there were five significant problems that Jezebel was causing. They're right here in the text that, that affected the church in Thyatira and, and the same problem, again, this is totally relevant for today, the same problem exists, especially in American Christianity. First problem is that she claimed to be the voice of God. Jezebel claimed to be the voice of God. Now, by saying she was a prophetess, she was claiming to have special revelation from God. And this is happening today. There are a number of preachers and teachers with, within Christianity who are claiming that God speaks directly to them with a new 
and unique word, that they have a direct revelation from God that nobody else has. In fact, one of the most popular books within Christianity right now is written by a woman who claims that she gets her teaching by this method, that God speaks direct revelation to her, and then she writes it down. And I want to say this morning, that is wrong. It is a very serious claim that we need to reject because it's what the Spirit of God calls out here. The Bible is very clear in Revelation 21 that there is nothing to be added to Scripture. Scripture is complete. God is not giving new revelation that's not contained in Scripture. It's just revelation that we need to uncover. Now, you may say, either seriously or with a lot of humor, then why do we listen to you every week? And my feelings aren't hurt if you ask that. See, the difference is, I'm not saying this morning that I have new revelation. I'm not saying that God spoke directly to me and gave me something that's extra to the Word of God this morning and that He only gave it to me. Because if I said that to you, that would not only be a lie, but it would be the height of arrogance. The reason I'm here, and I pray I'm just used by the Holy Spirit, is to explain the Word as I've studied it and anything that's new to us is truth that's already there that we're uncovering. The depth of Scripture, the depth of application, goes far beyond what we can understand. That's why you can read a passage of Scripture every day and get different application and get fresh truth and get fresh understanding because that's how the Holy Spirit works. So if someone claims to have special revelation, well, well, God spoke to me, and this is something that's not in your Bibles, and you're going to need help understanding it because God said this to me. I want to tell you right now, that's not of the Lord. That is not of the Lord. doesn't matter how helpful it is to you. It's not of the Lord. So first problem, she claimed to be the voice of God. Second problem is she called herself a prophetess. Now, being a prophetess was not an unbiblical ministry. Some people had that gift, according to 1 Corinthians 12. Anna in Luke 2, you remember Anna and Simeon, uh, the birth of, uh, birth of Christ, they were, they were, she was called a prophetess by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 12, Philip, the, the apostle, he had four daughters that were uh, prophetesses. So this was not unbiblical for somebody to be a prophet. Prophetess. The problem was, look back at the text, that Jezebel herself declared, I'm a prophetess. Now that's obviously wrong. If you have gifts for the Lord, and every single person in this room does, if you have gifts for the Lord, allow other spiritually mature people to recognize them. And then when they recognize them, deflect any attention away from yourself and your gift. Never draw attention to yourself. Never promote yourself. Never say, look at what I can do. Look how great I can sing. Look how great I can play. Look how great I can teach. Look how wonderful I am at doing this or this. Look at the gifts that I have in serving people, ministering to people, praying to people. You ought to come to me. You need prayer. You should come to me because I'm a prayer warrior. Never draw attention to yourself. That's an important lesson for every singer every musician, every pastor, every author, every Christian. Do not draw attention to your own gifts. Allow other people to recognize them and then deflect back to the Lord. 
So she said, I'm a prophetess. I have a word from the Lord, and you need to listen to me. And then the third problem is she was teaching the whole church. Now, this is a contradiction of 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. This is where some people get uncomfortable. Both those passages say that women should not teach men or have authority over men in the church. Now, that doesn't mean that a woman can't encourage the body. doesn't mean that a woman can't be led of the Spirit to do that or speak words of praise or lead people in prayer, just like Lynn did so beautifully this morning. She read the story about Horatio Spafford, and she encouraged us, and the women that were up here this morning led us in worship. It was wonderful. The Bible's not saying don't do that. It's talking about a more formal position of instructing the whole congregation as a position of authority in place of the men who are called to do that. Now, a lot of people will look at that, even with Christianity, I've had this debate many times, and they'll say, well, that's archaic. That's not what culture demands. It makes women unequal. No, the Bible never says that women are unequal. It says that teaching everyone and having authority over men is not the woman's role in the church. And there are many other roles. I once had a phone interview for a senior pastor job in Florida, and I wanted it because it had palm trees, and I like palm trees a lot. And about 45 minutes into the phone interview, which I thought was going wonderfully, by the way, they asked my view on this. They said, well, what's your, what's your belief on the role of women in the church? So I did what I thought was right. I answered it biblically. And a couple of minutes later, the interview abruptly ended. And as much as I wanted to live by the beach, I was okay with that. I was okay with them hanging up on me because I realized that that's nothing but trouble because they don't plan on obeying the word of God. See, we have to be cautious and we have to decide whether we want to obey Scripture or we want to do what appeases us. And there really is only one option. The problem with Jezebel was that she was teaching the church and the Bible says that's not what's supposed to happen. Now the fourth problem, and I'll try to get through this quickly, was that what she was teaching clearly contradicted the word of God. The Bible is clear about what it says, that there is to be no other God and that we are to walk in holiness. This is not questionable. This is not up for debate. There's not subjectivity here. The Bible is clear. So there was nothing good happening. So why did they tolerate her? And the word there is interesting. It means to allow and not hinder. In other words, they not only gave her the latitude to do what was wrong, and to teach this false truth, and to say she had the word of God directly to her, and to teach the men, they not only did that, but, but they, they pushed it. In other words, by not resisting it, they allowed her to have that freedom to do that. How many know that we need to be more pure about the word, not more relaxed? The word has to be more central to us. We have to teach and, and study 
understanding of the Word of God so that there's no compromise. I've often joked over the years of pastoring that every Christian should know whether I'm speaking heresy. And I've joked, someday I'm going to just toss in a word of heresy and see if somebody stands up and says, wait a minute, you're wrong. We need to be astute on Scripture. We need to know Scripture so well that as soon as we see something that's wrong, as soon as the red flag goes up, we say, wait a second, that's not right. And what she was teaching was, you're allowed to worship idols, and you are allowed to live an immoral lifestyle, and that's okay. And the church in Thyatira was saying, that's fine, let her teach. It's wrong on a number of levels, but, but we're going to allow it. And here's why this was so severe. Look back at it. It says in verse 20 that she was leading the Lord's bondservants astray. Now, that's the term used for believers who had really given their hearts and lives to the Lord. We've studied the concept of the bondservant before. It's a reference to Old Testament servants who after seven years were allowed to go free by the law. But if they chose to remain because they loved the master so much and they considered it a joy and privilege to serve the master, if after seven years, on that seventh year, they said, I don't want to leave, then they would take them, they'd put them against the door, they'd stretch their ear out, they'd put an awl, and they'd hammer it, and they'd make a hole in their ear. And that would be a sign that this person is a bondservant. They have willingly chosen to stay with the master because they love the master. So what are we saying here? We're saying that Jezebel was leading these strong, committed, faithful believers astray, and that was very serious. She was now attacking the inner core of the hearts of the church. And instead of fighting her, instead of removing her and saying, you are, you are heretical, you have no place uh, teaching anybody, and you certainly need to repent because that's what the Bible calls her to do. They considered it acceptable. This wasn't just about overt Bible uh, idol worship either. This was about social and business relationships. See, because Thyatira was strong with this purple plant, this little weird fish that had the drop of purple dye, it was, it was very strong in the textiles. And history shows that unions in Thyatira were very strong. So the pressure on the Christians there was to compromise in terms of their beliefs so that it would be socially accepted and they would be successful in business. Very relevant to today. Maybe you live, uh, work in a business where there's strong pressure, and I'm not saying just in terms of unions, but there's strong pressure to do things a certain way so you'll be successful in your job and so you'll be accepted socially, but that compromises the Word of God. They weren't being prohibited from worshiping. They were just saying, listen, to fit in, to participate, to, to not be blocked out in terms of business, you need to hang out with us and live an immoral life. And then they're going to church, and the church is saying, that's fine. No problem. So there was a significant spiritual conflict. Now here's the question, and then we're going to come to application and pray. Are we willing to bend morally in order to be accepted? Are we willing to bend morally in terms, uh, in order to be successful? See, those are the idols that tempt us. We don't, we don't drive up the street and there's a huge idol to Baal and we go, I wonder whether I should, should bow down to that. I don't know, that doesn't seem quite right. 
That's, that's not the idols we're facing. The idols we're facing are, am I going to compromise to be accepted? Am I going to compromise to be successful? Am I going to compromise so that I can fulfill my desire? Am I going to compromise so I can have social standing? Am I going to compromise so I can fit my schedule how I want at the expense of other things that will develop me spiritually? Am I going to do that? That's what they were fighting here. Now let's see how the Lord deals with it. Look back at verse 21. Jezebel's in sin, she's damaging other believers, and the Lord did what the church neglected to do. He confronted her and called her to repent. Now, this is the church's responsibility to call out open sin and to stop those who are in it from influencing other believers and hurting those who are young in the faith. The Bible calls it being a stumbling block. And that's not fun. That's not a fun job for the church and for leadership. It's hard to do, but if we don't do it, moral infection enters the church and it spreads. And I'll confess to you that over the years, we have sometimes fallen short on that here at this church. And I think the Lord disciplined us and allowed us to walk through some, some hard times because of it. Thankfully, he removed it and he did some refining, but, but we should have been more active. This is why it's so important to be accountable to the church as part of the body. And I'll confess to you also, we have fallen short on the issue of membership. And in the next few months, we're going to have new membership classes. And we'll want you to attach to this body and be part of it and be accountable to it. Because the best thing you can do is to be under accountability to the authority of the church. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So if you misstep, we can say, look, you're a member of this body. And we have a moral and ethical and spiritual responsibility to help you and encourage you and strengthen you. But we also need to challenge you. See, that's what they didn't do here. So look, look back at it. The Lord steps in and he confronts Jezebel and he calls her to repent. But she didn't want to do that. So he says, well, I'm going to make you sick. And I'm going to create all kinds of difficulty. And those that are connected to you and those that worship you and accept you, I'm going to make it difficult for them. Now, some people might say, well, there it is. See, the Lord's too harsh. I knew it. I knew it. He's not. He's the holy God. He's the righteous judge. He has every right to punish people that reject him. And he has every right to discipline us in sin when we're Christians. God has that right. Our forgiveness, what we've experienced from the Lord, doesn't give us license to sin. That's the whole point of Romans 5 and 6. Now that I'm saved, now that there's no condemnation for a believer, now I can go sin, right? Because then grace will abound. Paul says, nope, wrong thought. Now that you're forgiven, now that you're cleansed, now you have a right and an honor and a privilege and a nature to walk in holiness. So put off sin, deny yourself, reject the past life, and live in holiness. Because you're forgiven doesn't mean anything goes. Because you're forgiven means now I need to hold fast to the Lord. That's what they needed to understand. So how can we do that? Let's finish. How can we guard ourselves against moral compromise? Let me give you four quick applications. Four quick applications. First of all, live as a biblical Christian. God's word is timeless. That's why something that was written 5,000 years ago still applies to us. God's word doesn't change based on cultural acceptance. 
So we need to be timeless Christians. We need to live according to the word of God. Psalm 119.9, we heard it at Bible study Thursday night. It says, how can a man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? And many people will say, well, you're one of those people. You live by the, you really believe the Bible is true? You believe it's literal? You believe it applies to today? You are old school. You are not relevant at all. You're too narrow. You're intolerant of a changing culture. You're just not enlightened. You know what? Bring it on. You notice how in our culture there is an increased fury over biblical stances on abortion, homosexuality, gender fluidity, anything religious, let alone anything biblical, being in the public conversation. And there's a huge pressure on us now. And the goal that the enemy has is if he can weaken our theology about these very prominent issues, if he can get us to compromise because we're nervous or because we want to fit in and be accepted, then once that happens and once that's legislated, he's going to go after everything else. And teaching that is not unwaveringly centered on the word of God has to be rejected. And we have to say, we are not going to concede morally. We are not going to concede in what the Bible says for personal pleasure or for social acceptance. I was thinking the other night about the difference between my grandparents' generation and even us as baby boomers, let alone the millennials, although I think the, the millennials may end up being more conservative than their parents. And I'm going to sound really old school here, but you know what? So be it. For my grandparents, who were godly people, there was no acceptance of alcohol use. They rarely went to movies, definitely not R-rated movies. There was no swearing publicly. You dressed appropriately and with respect. There was clear respect for adults. The majority of them were faithful in marriage, and marriage was certainly only between a man and a woman. There was high respect for Scripture, and there was an understanding of the word and theology, and church attendance wasn't, wasn't, you know, once in a while. It was every time the door was open. That's just three generations, two generations ago for me. And now you see where we are as a body. You see where we are as Christians. You see what's happening in terms of Christian influence or lack of influence in our culture. And you say, I wonder whether... That was right. I think we need a little bit more of Jeremiah 6.16 where the Lord says, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. Maybe we need a little stepping back as Christians. Maybe we need a little bit of old ancient paths of the way things used to be done. I say, well, man, you're really out of touch, Paul. Okay. I've been out of touch and uncool my whole life. That's fine. I don't think at 52 I'm now going to become cool. Maybe if I shave my head and grow a goatee and wear leather, I don't know, maybe that'll be better. You don't want to see my head shaved, trust me. The ancient paths. We need to be timeless biblical Christians. Second, I think we need to live. I don't think we need to. We need to live as redeemed 
sanctified, consecrated children of God. He has saved us completely. He's cleansed us completely. He's transformed us completely. He's filled us completely. And he's adopted us completely. And we're going to give him part of our lives. We're going to give him just a little bit. We're going to hold on to sin and moral compromise. That's why Jesus died on the cross. No way, right? Jesus didn't die on the cross, so I can just give him a little bit of my life. Give him a, give him a Sunday here and there. Serve once in a while. Read my Bible when I get to it because I'm really busy. And, and, and maybe pray. I don't know. And I'm, and I'm kind of trying to do my best, but I got a lot of friends that need me to act a certain way. That's what we're going to do when he has done all that he's done. He's given us a holy nature, and he says, walk in it. So if we don't, it is a deliberate, willful choice that goes against what we know pleases the Lord and goes against what we know is right and beneficial. So here's the question. Are we more concerned with what Scripture will allow and what we can get away with, or are we concerned totally with being holy? Ephesians 5 says, don't let any impurity or immorality even be talked about among you. Don't even joke about it. Don't even mention what would be holy, let alone be part of it, because that's not how a redeemed child of God lives. One more thought. You need to live as the bride of Christ. You need to live as the bride of Christ. This really hit me midweek. Remember how it was before you got married, if you're married? You had high hopes and you were so full of joy and you prepared yourself and made yourself ready for the one you love. And that not only meant losing weight and taking care of all the details, it also meant being pure in your relationships and being faithful only to that one person and expressing your love all the time because you wanted to honor them and represent them well. Which means when I got married to Julie, in June of 89, I didn't show up at the wedding in torn jeans, not having showered or brushed my teeth, holding hands with another woman. Right? That would have been a shock as she stood there beautifully in her white dress. And I walked in, kind of scratching my leg, you know, my jeans. My teeth are all gnarly. I'm holding on to some little honey. Yeah. I'm here for the wedding. Would I have done that? Of course not. Because that was my bride. And I wanted to honor her and respect her and love her. And she wanted to do the same. Listen, whatever your experience with marriage, allow the Lord to teach you spiritual principles. If you've been hurt by marriage, if you've been divorced, or you had a relationship that was going to lead to marriage and it fell apart, I want you to feel that this morning. It seems harsh, but listen, that's what our unfaithfulness and that's what our rejection feels like to the Lord times 50 trillion. If we've been hurt in relationships and we've been burned, know that's what it feels like to the Lord when we sin. If your relationship is now dull and lifeless and passionless, feel that because that's what he spoke about to Ephesus and Pergamum. That's why he said, stand firm, be fast, get your love back from me. And if your marriage is full of joy and it's wonderful and it brings you happiness, I want you to feel that. 
because that's what we're supposed to be all the time. We're supposed to be grateful and full of joy, and we should see the ways that we can nurture the relationship just like we did when we first got married. And we said, I need to nurture this and make this grow, and it needs to mature so I can get to 28 years this summer with my bride and say I love her more than I did then. Whatever the case, listen now, we're done. Guard against any compromise in your love for the Lord. Guard against any immorality, any impurity, anything that will damage your relationship with Him. And when we're subjective with Scripture, and when we ignore its teaching in order to do what we want, in order to allow sin to have a place in our lives, that leads to an acceptance that we can be relaxed about our love and we can hurt the relationship and everything will be okay. So anything that contradicts the word of God, reject it. Anything that advances, anything that's unholy or, or conform to the world or in any way is questionable, this will not please the Lord. Uh, if I do this, I don't think the Lord is going to be honored in that. Anything like that should be resisted with all we have. And the Lord says, let's look at one more verse. He says, when you do this, and you hold fast, verse 25, I will give you victory, and I will give you power, and I will give you influence in the world. So hold fast. Hold fast until I come. Jesus is close, guys. Hold fast until I come. And you will be stronger in your faith. You'll be more confident. And when you interact with people who don't know Christ yet, you will influence them for Christ. By being strong in the Lord and strong in His Word. Let's ask the Lord to help us.